woman who voted for leopards eat your face party is now shocked that a leopard ate her face. Like, <laughs> you voted for this. Like, you you did this. From the start, there was complete transparency that this was not going to end well. <laughs> and now you're like, hey, this hasn't ended well. And everyone else is like, oh, really? Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. You're listening to the first episode of Season 3 of a bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. For those who don't know, my name is Milana. I am the resident science person. My name is Megan. I'm the, I'm the certified artist here, so I cover all the artists. So together, I think Milana and I, we balance one another out pretty well. You know, we should have. It's been... What, 11 years of our friendship? 15 years, whatever. a very long time. (laughs) I literally couldn't live my life without her. It's fine. Wait, we're back. We're back. You know, we we just came back from our winter break. And what did we miss? (laughs) And I've been so excited. I'm like, yeah, 2021, we're going to hit the ground running. This will be great. We lasted five days here in the United States before shit hit the fan. I think it was very important to point it out because uh, if anybody was listening to season two the entire time, we were like, please, God, vote. Please kick him out. Oh, God. And then we got there and we kicked him out and we thought it would be the end. Uh, We were wrong. What is it? At this point when we record, there's like just a little over a week before he's officially out and it can't come soon enough. And if this fucker gets lifelong President Perks... I am going to lose my shit. I hope that they can retroactively impeach him. But it's also great because I'm watching, like, we're watching the Republican Party tear itself apart. I mean, it's only been doing that for a few years now. But, yeah, things are a little bit of a hot mess here in the United States, to say the least. (laughs) And that's just politically. Like, that's not even looking at our COVID numbers or anything. Oh, yeah, that's a thing. So... I thought it was very fitting that we accidentally made today's episode, like the first episode of season three, another Let's Escape America volume. What are are we on now? Volume? (laughs) Volume three, actually. Volume three. Okay. Yeah. Because I was thinking we were like like a now. (laughs) Now that's what I call music. But now, (laughs) volume 235. (laughs) Get us out of here. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All right. Well... On my end today, we're not escaping too far from America. We're going to Canada. And I mean, honestly, it's still looking like a good option to move to, to Canada. I'm okay with it. Yeah, I know. I thought we were, we got past that with the election cycle. But no. I mean, <laughs> I'm not suited for a second American Civil War. <laughs> Do you see Arnold Schwarzenegger's, Schwarzenegger's message to the United States this morning? He released it. I, I saw a headline. I didn't see it. I haven't really. I've I've been doing this, so I haven't looked at news. Oh man, it, it's ooh, it's when Arnold says, "Get your shit together, America." Like, yo, we gotta get our shit together. <laughs> he pulled out Conan's sword and all. What? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I gotta look into this. All right, who do we have today? So we are going to Canada today. 
Last season, we covered the Canadian Inuit printmaker Pitsol Lakashu. That was episode 28. And she pretty much lived in the Arctic, like, not too far away from Greenland. Okay. We are going to, like, literally the opposite end of Canada today. The west part, you said? The west part of Canada? Yes. Okay. The west part, away from Greenland. I know Don't geography. Worry. I've got a little bit of geography breakdown for you, since you are not geography inclined. No. I got gotcha. not. That is not a science I give two shits about. I've got a visual memory, so that's why it's easier for me to pick up, but I gotcha. Got it. Or that's where we're going to cover the first professional woman totem pole carver, Ellen Neal. Were there sporting events? You know what? No, but when you say that, I just imagined, like, burly men with chainsaws attacking <laughs> logs. I, I feel like that's technically something totally different. <laughs> when you said it to me earlier, that's why I laughed because it really, that's the, what was in my head was that there were sporting events where people like, you know how you have like, I think Wisconsin, it's like cheese carving. And butter. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of that for some reason. Like she was like making a spectacle out of it and kicking ass and no, no, she, I mean like she was an artist and she sold her, her work, but in my head, it's much more fun the other way. <laughs> You know, and I'm sure there might be pockets of that, like for a show, like for, for certain events. Right. To show the process of it and kind of make it a little competitive. So that that might most likely be very, very much is a real thing. Um, that doesn't really come into play today on my end. So I'll have to look into that. If there's Fair. any competitive totem pole carving competitions. So Vancouver Island, it is immediately like northwest of the Seattle, Washington area. So in that very corner, like in the United States, Canada border, there's like this little dip in the border. That dip is because of Vancouver Island. Okay, got it. I just thought it was a weird peninsula thing. So it's actually kind of the most southern region of like West Canada. Yeah, I think actually um, I have a friend that lives out in that area and he's he lives on an island. That's like it's still technically like United States territory, but it's mm-hmm. like near I think it's near Vancouver. It's, like, in that area. He loses electricity a lot. That sounds about right if you're in a little bit more of an isolated area. We are focusing on a very small island off of the northeastern tip of Vancouver Island where the village of Alert Bay is located. And it's it's pretty small. It's about 1,500 people that max live there today. And over half of them are First Nation peoples. And this is where, in 1916, totem pole carver... Ellen Neal was born. The northern region of Vancouver Island is the traditional territory of the Kwakwakaewak people. I will have you know, pretty much every reference material I came across, there was a slightly different pronunciation guide. Kwakwakaewak. Kwakwakaewak. And I, I found someone from that tribe who had created a YouTube video documentary. I'm using them as a pronunciation guide. I might have it slightly wrong. I'm trying. Got it. Like, specifically within the Kwakwakaewak, there's divisions of about 18 tribes. And today, in total, there's only about 3,600 members of the nation. And that small number is a consequence of discriminatory assimilation practices Mm. tracing all the way back to the 1850s by the Canadian government. And with those 1850 kind of practices in place, by the time Ellen was born in 1916... 
to a Kwakwakaewak mother, Lucy, and then an American seaman father, Charles. Things were a little rough in Alert Bay. By that point, there had been decades of attempted cultural bankruptcy of First Nation people, just in general, by the Canadian government. And I mean, honestly, they were doing that before they were even the Canadian government, when they were still ruled by England. Or France. The Kwakwakaewak community. I mean, they're like history and their culture, like... It's so rich. Basically, overall, connection to the land around them and to their ancestors are central to the community. And traditions and customs and history, like, it's passed down through song and dance. Okay, so those performances of singing and dancing, these are, like, they're highly revered. And the gift of song, like, literally gifting a family song to a family member, usually the eldest son, that is the highest value gift that can be given. These songs, they're the living documents of the nation, the living records. Of their history. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, to be a holder, like, a performer of that song means, like, you're one of the highest regarded people, like, in the community. The event where these songs and dances take place are the potlatch. And the potlatch is the most important type of ceremony within the Kwakwakaewak culture. Any formal gathering of the community where those customs, that performance, are performed and like the reason for the gathering might be like a wedding or a funeral or like the naming of a child so you know it brings everyone all together you know can can vary and people hosting the event in some cases would plan like years ahead for them one of the central themes of the potlatch is the distribution of wealth so the the host you know for those who are attending like a main focus is to go overboard and giving them gifts so like Basically, the better you can shower gifts on your attendees, like, the higher status you achieve. Who's, who's got the full-size candy bars on Halloween? Oh, we are going past that. I mean, in some <laughs> cases, it's like, you know, like the Oprah equivalent of, like, you get 50 pounds of flour, and you get 50, 50 pounds of flour, and, like, you get five barrels of fish oil, and you get five oh. barrels of fish oil. Like, I mean, and the idea is that, like, only the people who are truly wealthy and are able to do that and give things away because they're in such a good position. And also it's just the communal spirit of it, of like being able to provide for other people that's highly right. valued. I wish that that was highly valued here, but whatever. I, yeah, not at all. Um, aside from the spiritual and the communal growth that these events would serve, like they also foster the creative arts, which is what I'm here for. So... The most well-known art form in Ellen's community is the totem pole. The area is really rich in cedar, and that's rot-resistant and is really suitable for carving, so that lends itself to, you know, like wood art. Totem poles, they developed alongside other wood crafts like canoe carving and mass making, and, you know, those are components that would play into the potlatches. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really funny. So this is a bit contested, but... Alert Bay boasts that they have the tallest totem pole in the world. Okay, so I have questions, and the first one is... <laughs> uh, not just how tall this totem pole is, but exactly how many other totem poles are contesting this one totem pole. <laughs> okay, like, actually a handful of them. <laughs> There was one, I don't have the details on it, but it wins for being the thickest totem pole. 
Yeah, I thought you'd appreciate that. I can't, uh, tell, you, I can't tell you the girth of it, but it's it gets the job done. Oh, my God. Hold on. Googling now. <laughs> I see. I wasn't even going to mention it. Um, Six feet in diameter. Where is it located? I know it's in British Columbia. It's in Duncan, British Columbia. Okay. I don't, yeah, I don't know where that is. Oh, 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 it's actually the quack, quack. Quaquawa style. Quaquawak. Yes. Quaquawak. They've done a lot of totem pole carving. Damn. That, that's been a traditional craft within their, their community. They got thick ones. They got tall ones. They got the, curved the... ones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Everything sorry. to meet a, your need. It's a beautiful art form. I'm being stupid. It's gorgeous. And I'm kind of jealous that I don't have any kind of artistic ability whatsoever. So I apologize. Go ahead. Well, maybe one day we can go on a My Favorite Feminist tour across the United States and then Canada. And like we could go visit this place and see the world's tallest totem pole, which reaches 173 feet. Jesus. <laughs> and it it's contested because, if I remember correctly, it's actually comprised of three different logs. Oh, so it's like just three stacked on top of each other. That's still pretty fucking insane. It is. It, it's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. But there's there's like another one that is just made of like te- like one tree, and they're like, well, we are technically the tallest because it's it's the purity of it. But you know, I, it is not for me to weigh in on that discussion. Yeah. But so like back to Pollux. So visitors, they would be greeted by a totem pole. Um, you know, wealthier houses would have them displayed in front of their homes. Sometimes there would be communal ones. And then, like, within the potluck ceremony, like, dancers would be wearing wood masks and ceremonial, like, woven costumes. And all these various creative outlets, they serve, like, a larger creative narrative. So, like, everything is rich in symbolism. It's also very regimented in like, what symbolism is being used when and, like, by who. Mm. So, like, for example, like, certain families had certain crests that, like, only they could use. Like, their crest might be, like, a bear or um, an eagle or something. But, like, a bear with red eyes instead of green eyes. You don't, I don't know if it vary that much. I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, you figured if you have enough people in the in the village, even if it's like a small Native American space, you you only have so many woodland creatures you can attach to a family, right? Yeah, or maybe like expressions that they have. I'm not sure. I can't. I can't speak. Yeah, to maybe that, you but... have a dragon crying and then like a dragon laughing, and then. But like the shorter than the stick would be having a having the dragon that's crying. Like, why are you crying? I love how a crying dragon is the first thing that comes to mind for you. Like. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure, like, my family animal would be, like, a goat, but, like, whatever. <laughs> I just want to make the dragon happy. He's a good dragon. <laughs> I think Milo's got some personal stuff she's got to work through. But anyway, <laughs> back to Albert Bay. <laughs> um, yeah, like, the, the Western version of that is, like, a coat of arms, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And specific to totem poles. They're not so much about telling a story, but rather acting as, like, documents and markers in events that have taken place. So, like, asserting a family's, like, lineage or, like, and their respective rights, like, in the community because of that lineage. Right. So, I mean, basically, they act as, like, social economic markers. Got it. 
Ellen was born to a family of prominent modern totem pole carvers, and that all stemmed from her maternal grandfather, Charlie James. Okay. Charlie, who taught other family members, like, they all worked in the art style unique to the Pacific Northwest. So I'm, I'm sure you'd recognize it if you saw it. You know, very organic, stylized, like, characteristics featuring human and animal, like, personifications. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah. applies to both their sculpture work and then, like, 2D work. And one thing that's unique to the, the area that kind of crosses between, you know, American and Canadian Native peoples are form lines. Form lines? That's the title of the line work that makes up surface detail. Got it. And usually it's it stems from mostly oval and U-shaped forms. Mm. And the line widths will vary, but they all, like, flow together. Kind of has, like, a, a calligraphy-like feel to it. Um, right. Usually everything is very symmetrical. And the main line work is done in black. And then there might be some accent lines in reds or blues or yellows. And mm. Ellen learned to carve and paint her work in this traditional style from Grandpa. Finding time with Grandpa. Yeah, and when she was growing up, her mom was sick quite a bit. So she did. she learned a lot from him. She she was with him most of the time. And it was cool because he was one of the few keeping the tradition alive while it was actually, like, legally banned. Oh, shit. So Grandpa was a rebel. A bit. Um, Okay. So insert colonialism here. (laughs) Yeah, we don't need to go over that. Just just go for it. We know. (laughs) in In 1876, the Canadian government... But then they were actually Canada officially. They passed the Indian Act. And that was the formal unification of various legislation going back to the 1957 that essentially gave the Canadian government the right to dictate almost everything about First Nation people. Oh, good. Yeah, it, it was the legalized assimilation and whitewashing of their histories and cultures. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. That's on par for the course. Yep. Yeah, specific to First Nation people in the North Pacific, and specifically the Kwakwakaewak. The most dangerous thing about them that would jeopardize the government's assimilation attempts, like from the white people's views, was the potlatch. So it was banned. It was made illegal, and supporting or hosting or having any ceremonial objects that were used in the potlatch, it, it was punishable by up to six months in jail. I don't understand. I mean, I do understand. I get what white people were doing. That's their brand. Right. <laughs> yeah, we don't have the best track history with stuff like that. Or uh, rather, unfortunately, we have a really consistent track history. Oh, my God. It's yeah. so bad. I just, like, just let people have their fucking lives. Get get, get out. Just get out. <sighs> well, it was, it was, like, really messed up because they recognized the threat from an economic standpoint. So the ceremony, it's a public distribution of wealth mm-hmm. that helped the support, like that helps the tribe support one another, right? So outsiders knew that if they disrupted that and if they like forced in capitalism and private ownership, it would be easier to erase like those communal ties and their traditions. Unfucking real. Yeah. So like the, the government, the Canadian government and also like religious, mer- like Christian mercenaries. I want to say mercenaries. That would be intense. <laughs> Christian <laughs> missionaries knew if they were able to stop that, that it would be way easier to like 
to completely rip apart a beautiful culture. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, and they knew that if they targeted that financial structure, that yeah. it would undermine things. Yeah. So. Like in 1921, when Ellen was five, a chief held an illegal potlatch, like for a wedding, in Alert Bay. Two government agents busted the event. 50 people were arrested. And the government was like, hey, guys, if you hand over, like, all your goods, so all the gifts that were going to be given, all the ceremonial objects, they were like, if you just give that to us, like, we'll totally release everyone that we arrested. Okay, so 22 people were still jailed, and hundreds of objects were confiscated by the government. And, okay, one of the arresting officers, he fucking kept items for himself and then later donated them to a museum, which I'm pretty sure he got a tax write-off for. Oh, fuck off. Yeah. So from that one potlatch being raided, hundreds of items were taken away, like, only to be sold to private collectors or to museums, like, all across Canada and then internationally, too. So, like, I normally don't go into, like, background material like that so much in episodes, but, like, that's the backdrop to, like, what Ellen is being raised in. Being told that her her tradition is uh, a threat. (laughs) And, yeah, having people actively try to, like, erase it. So that's why it's really important that when she was little, like, she got to spend that time with her grandpa and, like, from him, like, she learned totem pole carving. And, like, traditionally, it was usually the men who would learn that, but culturally traditions were so fraught that the elders were like we'll teach anyone anything who wants to learn it like we'll do anything like we just need to keep this going because at that point there had already been decades of like you said that erasure yeah so ellen she took to it so by 12 her work it was so good that it was being sold to tourists so the messed up thing is that there are two workarounds to creating totem poles so the indian act said that you can make a totem pole if you're restoring it like for an academic setting or if they're, like, totem poles that are being sold to tourists. Oh, of course. Yeah. You got to bring in So you're tourism. essentially trying to strip their value, like, their inherent spiritual yeah. value yeah. by making them, like, a commodity. Yep. So Little trinkets. Take it home. Look, Sally, I brought this home from Canada. The, the Quakey. It was a beautiful community. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Ellen, she helped to, you know, feed that tourist market and to try to make a, a little bit of money off of it. So she finished school when she was 18. That was in 1934. After that, fell for a guy uh, and later married him. He, he was an American salesperson, Edward Neal. And <laughs> like, oh, she got married. <laughs> if anything, I found one account that he was like a smooth talking like salesperson who had like kind of needed to get out of the United States. Oh, God. Yeah, I was like, I wish I knew more about that background because that sounds (laughs) like there's a story there. What's he running away from? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, Yeah, so instead, he ends up in this this island and they get married. And she was young. When they were married, it was 1939. And Ellen, she was only about 23. Okay. Okay, get this. By 1945, 29, she has six kids. Nope. Yeah. I mean, I only, nope. I only point that out because you and I currently were both 29 and we nope. both have like one dog. I'm good. <laughs> You've got two cats. You had a hamster <laughs> that one time and then that lizard. <laughs> okay. Cats. That lizard. Uh, please give Trixie more respect. Uh, I like how you're like, hey, well, obviously my favorite animal was the bearded dragon and not the hamster. 
I look. Like you Trixie, just played favorites there. Like while a hamster was a perfectly good hamster, he was an escape artist, and it drove me nuts. He was constantly getting out. I don't know how. <laughs> I swear, I swear, one of your cats, Miss Kitty, would just like open the door periodically and be like, "Yeah, let's fuck up some fuck up some shit." Just, yeah, I feel like they were working together just to stress me out every goddamn week. You know how many zip ties I put around that fucker's cage? Okay. Yeah, we, like, between the two of us, we handle animals and not small children, but yes. Ellen, <laughs> she's, they started a big family, like, right away. By 1945, they had moved from Alert Bay, from Vancouver Island, to the v- Vancouver City proper. Okay. A little, so a little closer to, like, Seattle. So they were tired of losing power. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, it's the village they came from was already so small, and so opportunities were really limited. So by moving to Vancouver, there was just, in theory, a lot more opportunities for them to be able to support, like, a big family. That's fair. I say in theory. It's still a little touch and go. When you're a half Native American and your kids are a quarter Native American? Yeah, okay, this is another messed up thing. So with the Indian Act, that gave the Canadian government the ability to say who was actually Indian or not. Yeah. Yes. So within her community, you know, it's like, it's based on who your mother is, right? Right. But the Canadian government was like, nah, it's the dad. It's always the dad. What? So okay. in some ways, like, she could be shut out of any potential support systems that they have for Native Americans, sorry, for First Nations people, because they could be like, well, it's just your mother so you and your kids don't count. But, I mean, either way, she really identified with her her Native community and her upbringing. Like, in her community, like, historically, totem pole carvers were, like, highly regarded. But that status was lost, and that financial support that would have come from participating in potlucks was just, like, gone. Mm. And so, I mean, that's another reason why, if those ceremonies were still going on in her area, she might have been able to, you know, really benefit from that and that social connection and financial support right but without that like i think that's another reason why they chose to go to vancouver to try to make a living like not long after they moved there ellen husband he suffered a series of strokes and after that he wasn't able to work oh no so now she has to be the breadwinner yes with six kids does this mean she gives up totem pole making no she amps it up okay good so she taps in to the much larger, like, tourist population in Vancouver and is able to open a booth in the summer to be able to market, like, small totem poles. Usually, like, under 18 inches, you know, may- maybe going up to three feet, but they're usually on the, the much smaller side. You know, something you'd have on, like, your coffee table. I wonder if she, like, put the totem pieces on, like, backwards to kind of, like... As, like, a little joke for her. To, like, fuck with them? To, yeah, to fuck with her. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure someone might have been like, like, Mom, that's not, like, the color scheme that we're supposed to do. And she'd be like, they're not going to fucking know. They're not going to know. Yeah. No. You're right, because, I mean, there was just a lot of ignorance, but also this weird desire to, like, consume these, like, you know, objects of the other. Like, we saw that in America. You know, right. there, it was a hot craze for, like, Native American items in, like, the late 18, early 1900s. and Jesus. Yeah, and, and to an extent that kind of watered down the quality of the items because, like, most mm-hmm. people couldn't tell if it was well-made or not. Right. For yeah. sure. So I'm, I'm sure there is a comparable amount of that going on. Yeah. In the tourist market within Canada. 
So from this endeavor, she she enlisted her kids to help make them. The house became like the work studio for her Northwestern Coast native art business. And like up to that point in the 1940s, like there's this robust market for like traditional First Nations craft work among collectors. And not just the tourist market, but like actual collectors. Yeah, like galleries and shit. Like that desire provided a job market for Ellen to work in the restoration of old totem poles, like within museum collections. Nice. It's like weird because they're like, oh, no, you guys can't actually make your own totem poles these days, like not proper ones. But hey, you can restore ones that were carved like 100 years ago. Yeah, that is kind of weird. It's like it's a little insulting. It's very insulting. However, she now has job security. Uh, yeah, to to an extent. So she did do that for a while, but like ultimately she was frustrated with it because like Ellen said about it in a 14, 1948 speech that she gave at the Conference of Native Indian Affairs. Quote, if her art is dead, then it is fit only to be mummified, packed into mortuary boxes, and tucked away into museums. Whereas to me, it is a living symbol of the gaiety, the laughter, and the love of color of my people. A day-to-day reminder to us that even we have something of glory and honor before the white man came. And art must be continued to live, not only for its part and parcel of us, but it can be a powerful factor in combining the best part of the Indian culture into the fabric of truly Canadian art form. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like, she wanted it to be recognized like as a fine art in and of itself, and essentially not just like this weird time capsule of work. And right. that's what, like... Because it, it was so fucked up. So, like, in the 1920s, the government, the Canadian government was like, oh, hey, look, like, these First Nations crafts and artworks are dying out. I wonder why. We should totally buy them up and then put them in museums to preserve them. And that was an idea of salvage anthropology. I, like, I shit you not. <laughs> like, they were complicit in making sure these things died out. And then we're like, hey, they were dying out. Maybe we should buy them up and put them in museums. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I bet some of them were like, oh, we got to save them because we're the only people who can save it. Yes. And we talk about that quite a bit with someone from the first season, Maria Martinez, and museums, even in the 1940s and 50s, had that same attitude towards, like, Native Americans. Bullshit. It was so condescending. In that instance, it was a lot of ceramics. And they're like, well, we need to put them in our museums because only we know how to take care of them. Not the actual communities <laughs> producing the work. It, it's just, it's so <laughs> fucked up. And one thing that is really fucked up, here's a little sidetrack story. In 1927, a government agent from the same region as Ellen, British Columbia, mm-hmm. he saw a community totem pole, reached out to his higher ups, got the okay, and then wrote to a museum in Sweden. And he was like, hey, do you guys want to buy a totem pole? Why? And the Swedish museum was like, yeah, cool. And the government official was like, awesome, sweet. So two years later, in 1929, when the villagers were away on a fishing trip, people, and like white people, the white government people, snuck in, chopped down the totem pole, and then fucking shipped it off to Sweden. What? Yeah, and that's that's an example of the type of salvage anthropology that was going on. I, what? Well, they needed to save and preserve these things. What? I... Okay, it wasn't until 1991 
62 years later, when the community learned even where it was. Holy shit! Yeah, they weren't able to get it back until 2006. That was 77 years after it was stolen from them. Oh my god. How? How? An entire totem pole just gone. Yes, like they came in while everyone was gone, chopped it down, and then shipped it like halfway across the world. What? Because that could be money in their pockets, and also at the same time, they're preserving their culture. That's fucking insane. Yeah. That's, okay. I mean, one thing that's nice is, and the same thing happened within, like, Ellen's community with that wedding that was raided. So not all of those objects, like, specific to the 1921 incident have been, like, repatriated, but there's, like, a museum and a cultural center in Alert Bay where they have been able to find and negotiate back a a handful of the items that were sold to either museum institutions or private collectors. Yeah, so that's the type of shit that was going on in, you know, some parts of Canada by the Canadian government. But, I mean, hey, comparably, here in the United States, we weren't doing much fucking better either. Right. And culturally, there was some change in 1951. So the ban on potlatches was repealed, making them no longer illegal. Woo! Yeah. And it's, it's actually reported that Ellen's uncle, who was also a really respected totem pole carver, Mungo Martin, he was the first to hold the first legal potlatch since, like, the 1850s. So, like, like in 1953, it had been 77 years since they had been made That's illegal. Cool. That's very cool. So she's kind of like royalty. I mean, even her position within the community and as a totem pole carver. Like, as a totem pole artist. Yeah. yeah so. There was one uh, document I came across that did technically refer to her as like you know from a noble family i could see it yeah Yeah, and i was like okay i'm like i you know biographical information on her is a little scant so i'm like i it's it was only one instance that i came across but like also at the same time like i could see someone going from you know a very well-to-do family within the community and then essentially living in one of the poorest neighborhoods in vancouver because you know her skin tone is not the right color yep yep but so that change in 1951 it brought on a renaissance of sorts for like contemporary first nation artwork and culture because suddenly all the items associated with the potlatch ceremony that had been banned are like no longer and that really opened things up especially with totem poles got it so a historian said of ellen quote she wanted to turn out new original work that would bear her name and allow her particular art style to continue to develop Ellen didn't believe that the efforts of an artist should be confined solely to the preservation of old work. Yeah. You got to keep doing work. You got to keep making. And keep it fresh and, like, yeah. not in some weird time capsule of, like, what white people think it should be. Because that's, that's, mm-hmm. that was really going on in the 1940s and 50s. No, because your people, they're still alive. Their, their stories are still being made and you got to keep it going. It's still rich and, like, you know, yeah. what... What their idea of what it should be is like, yeah, 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 that stuff that was made decades ago. Like, yeah. All right. So after potlatches were made not illegal, um, Ellen was really able to explore like her work and really grow from it. So she took on commissions that allowed her to work much larger than the souvenir site sizes that she was doing. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, she was working up to 16 feet tall. Ooh, yeah. Big jump from like. 18 inches to 16 feet. Jesus. And through this new work in the 1950s, like, she was able to strengthen her creative style and expand past traditional notions of of form and color usage. Nice. So she's branching out. 
Yeah, no, she really is. And after this, like, she becomes well known for her totem poles that feature a Thunderbird crest at the top with, like, its wings outstretched. So that was, like, her family, like, insignia. And, like, she also carved and painted these masks that would have traditionally been used in the potlatch ceremonies. Got it. And Got they're it. they're really fun. They're very, like, kind of stylized facial features with these, like, really nice accents of, like, maybe black or red or more of, like, a teal turquoise color. Things were financially touch and go during the 1950s. And then later on in 1961, her oldest son, David, died at the age of 24 from a car crash. Oh, no. Ellen wasn't the same after that. Aside from the one direct quote I do have from her about that speech she gave. There's no, like, first-hand accounts of, like, how she must have felt, but, like, either way, I'm sure she was just gutted. Mm-hmm. And, like, we do know after that that Ellen was really prone to bouts of sickness that left her unable to work. Oh, no. Do we know what sickness? Don't be tuberculosis. No, no, it wasn't tuberculosis, but... Okay. I think it might have been depression. I don't know if there was any other underlying health issues or any issues that just weren't, like, medically addressed because... Yeah, and I mean, depression is... It that hits you hard, like, yeah, stops you in your tracks. For the last few years of her life, like she spent them in really severe poverty to the point where, like, she had to start selling off her tools and her own artwork, like her oh. own personal collection, like to survive. Oh God! And she had friends. They were like, reach out to the Canadian government. Like, they've got a council of arts. Like, you know, maybe they can help give you some grant money. And she right. did. And they were like, oh, we totally sympathize with you, but we can't give you anything at this time. Uh. It wasn't great. And then in 1966, when she was 49, uh, Ellen went to the hospital and she, she passed away. Oh, my God. So, I mean, she was she was young. Um, yeah. You know, unfortunately, like, Ellen, she fits in with the reality that, like, even into the 2000s, like, Native people have lower life expectancies than non-Native Canadians. Holy shit. Yeah. Usually it's not that severe but there is anywhere from a five to seven year difference in terms of mortality rates which that's a little too big for me yeah that's just all thanks to the lack of just discriminatory practices yeah yeah and i'm sure we see that same kind of thing here in the united states like with those covid rates the native americans for sure for sure um so while ellen's life was cut short like she did help pave the way for like a newer generation of women artists like bridging contemporary and native content in their work. Got it. And there's been a whole slew of people that worked under her or like worked in the same circles that like came after her that continued on totem pole carving both traditionally and then contemporary and then, you know, using other materials in their artwork. Very cool. Influenced by and driven by her work. Yeah, and just, you know, help keep that tradition going when it was such a touch-and-go kind of period. Yeah. One thing that's cool is that her grandson, David Jr., it was it was his father who died in that car crash. He was a, He's a contemporary multimedia artist who's working today, and he examines his own ancestry, ancestry in his art. Oh. Yeah, so his work is very rich. He, he was originally trained as a photographer, but does um, other, like, installation work and painting and stuff. Keeping it in the family. Yeah. So one thing I thought was fitting is that Ellen's traditional name, she didn't really go by, but she did sign on her work along with her name, Ellen Neal. And it's Kakasolas, which means people who come from far away to seek her advice. 
Oh, man. And I just feel like that's so fitting because during her lifetime, like, she lived up to that. And, yeah, learning from her family and then passing it on to others, her own family and then people outside of it, like, she really did embody that. So, I mean, again, even though she, she was gone from us, like, too young, like, she really did help make an impact in the community and then, you know, kind of beyond that. So that is Ellen Neal, the first professional totem pole carver and our second Canadian that we've covered. And yeah, you know, we thought, yeah, let's start episode one, season three with just an absolutely feel good story. Okay. That's what keeps well, people we... coming back for more. We're, we're going <laughs> to... Mine, mine is a is a pretty solid, happy story. We're gonna finish this second half with a woman who persevered through some very difficult times and came out the other side, world renowned. Okay, cool, cool. We're kind of two for two. I'm okay with this. Yeah, man. Yeah, for sure. I just um, yeah, for what you mentioned, um, yours has a much happier ending, which you know what I'm cool with. Let's do this. All right. So I told you earlier that she was a neurobiologist. So her name was Rita. Oh, God. Rita <sighs> Levy Montalcini. <laughs> oh, are we going to Italy? We're going to Italy. All right. Can you say her name again? Because it sounded like fettuccine to me, but that just might be me thinking about I'm, dinner. I'm assuming there's chini at the end because it's C-I-N-I. Okay. Um. So it's Rita Levy hyphen Montalcini. Cini? Okay. Cini. I'm sorry. <laughs> she was born in Turin, Italy, April 22nd, 1909. <laughs> I know where that is. <laughs> I, I, I didn't even look it up. You want to tell us where it is? <laughs> okay, yeah. So there was a really big banking heist that happened, I believe, in Belgium, and it was a bunch of Italians who did the job, and they were all from Turin, Italy. Oh my god. That's, that's, that's the only reason why I'm familiar with it. Did I, I listened to an audiobook about it. It was really wild. <laughs> All right. The book is Flawless Inside the Largest Diamond Heist in History by Greg Campbell and Scott Andrew Selby. It's really good. It makes for a really good audiobook. You guys should check it out. But uh, yeah, so uh, Turin in the um, kind of northwestern region of Italy, and I'm aware of it because of a prominent bank robbery. So yeah. Oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> But no, she was not a bank robber. Her dad was not a bank robber either. Ah, damn it. I was going to ask. Nope. You know me so nope. well. <laughs> Her dad, uh, Adamo, I guess Adam in, in Italian, was an electrical engineer and a mathematician. Mom was not an engineer. She was a painter. Okay, cool. I can get on board yeah. with that. Rita and her twin sister, Paola, were the youngest of four children, following their older brother, Gino, who ended up being an architect. And their older sister, Anna. Sister, Anna. She ended up being, like, a wife with kids. Um, being, okay. like, a stay-at-home. Yeah. A homemaker. Um, so it was a happy childhood, loving family. Mom and dad were intellectuals, loved exposing their children to culture. But it was the Victorian era. So dad made all the choices. His choice was to keep all three of his daughters away from going to college and becoming professionals. He thought it would get in the way of their future wife and mother duties. I like it better when you cover the scientists in which the dads are like, come here, I'm going to teach you this. Like, 
yeah, I liked it better too, but yeah. this is not that case. Okay. This, right. this is not that person. <laughs> <sighs> okay. All right. Whatever. I was hoping he, like, you know, made a school for women like several other of the dads in our life, but not this guy. Nay, nay. Nay, nay. I mean, he loved her. He loved them. He just didn't. He was like, they just need to be wives and mothers because that's what they do. Obviously. Duh. I mean, like, what do you think this podcast is preparing us for, Milana? To be, like, the optimal wife and mother. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so, her sister Anna. Her sister. What is wrong with me? Her sister Anna. I think it's because the Anna, the A, sister. Her sister Anna didn't seem to mind. Again, she married, had kids, all that good stuff. Yeah. Paola was all about the art, her twin sister. And art was an okay thing for wife and mother to do, so there was no barrier there. Like, dad didn't get in the way for that. Yeah. And, I, I mean, that, like, I, I understand that because my, my grandmother was born in the 1920s. So her parents were born in the Victorian era, even in Colombia. And, like, for her, her mindset, like, women paint and they take care of children and they take care of their husband. And if you don't do all three... You have a problem. That's why she would constantly ask me, do I paint? Why don't I paint? Like, at, at the age of, like, fucking 96, she was still on me for not painting. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there were just certain things that were respectable. So if it wasn't painting, which was usually painting still lives of flowers, it was mm-hmm, yeah. um, embroidery work. That was something that was really popular. Yeah. Frida, on the other hand, a little bit more of a struggle. Okay. Tiny bit. The gender role life was not for her, and she kept asking her dad, you know, please let me go to college. Please let me study science. Um, like, I can do this. Like, I don't want to marry. Like, mm-hmm. this isn't for me. And then finally, around age 20, her dad gave in. So in eight months, she shoved as much Latin, physics, and mathematics in her brain as humanly possible, <laughs> finished high school, she hadn't even finished high school at that point. Okay. And jumped straight into medical school. I also imagine she was probably sneaking some of that stuff on the side, like, knowing she's like, I'm going to wear him down. I'm sure she was doing it, but, like, she was, like, her dad wasn't teaching her. She wasn't going to school, and then she had to, like, if she did, she was hiding it from her dad. Like, Yeah, and, like, how much, how many books can she sneak? Like, you know, I'm sure there's a limit to, like, what she might have been able to get a hold of secretly. And honestly, yeah. this comes into play later. I didn't even think about that until right now so thank you for that <laughs> okay all right um but yeah if only entering medical school were that easy now <laughs> i mean hey you did cover someone last season the very last episode who i mean what had their medical degree like by the age they were 13 i mean the 1840s like that's just a wild time i don't want to talk about it <laughs> i'm so upset um but yeah so she studied along in, in the medical college she went to, two individuals who would later earn the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology, and she also studied under a world-renowned histologist named Giuseppe Levy. And again, histology from last season, I, I don't know if you remember what histology is. Blood. No. Ah, oh, damn it. Sorry, guys. Studies, it's the study of cells, essentially, and how they work. Wow. So she then graduated summa cum laude in 1936. And then off to her residency, uh, where she specialized in neurology and psychiatry. And this was in Brussels, Belgium. Okay. Here, she admits that it was during this time she was still, like, 
do I want to be a physician or do I want to do research? Like, she wasn't sure which side she was doing. Okay. Um, yeah, so she, I don't I don't know what's going on. Um, but then 1938 happened. Yeah, things were a little politically fraught in Europe <laughs> at that time. Her debate was stopped dead in its tracks, uh, specifically by the Manifesto per la Defesa de la Raza. So, guess who issued it? I feel like it's a trick question. Because you're like, well, obviously say Hitler, but you're like, yeah, but it's an Italian. So, like, is it Mussolini? It is Mussolini. Ah, okay. So, it's uh, the Manifesto of Race is what, it's, what oh. it translates into. Jesus. Yep. Yep. Did you... I know. Have you heard about the Republican congresswoman who was quoted as saying that in one respect, Hitler was right? Shut up. Yeah. And it was essentially... um. Along the lines of his quote was, you know, he who controls the youth controls the future. Oh, my God. Yeah, she's facing a little backlash from that. And she's been like, guys, guys, it's not I'm not pro Hitler. I'm totally pro Israel. You can't be mad at me for that. That was Mary Miller, Republican congresswoman from Illinois. OK, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. It's a little. I'm done. I don't. Uh, yeah. I just. Oh, God. This week in American news. <laughs> fucking awful so Mussolini 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 uh issued it it was signed by about 130 people including two of what apparently passed as scientists back then I mean I feel like at that point you could still put leeches on people and offer them cocaine so like you know okay the the bar is low yeah Yeah. um quick rundown of what that manifesto had to say so Italians are descendants of the Aryan race oh Jesus okay other races were seen as inferior, so not the not anyone of the Aryan race, but literally everyone else, mm-hmm. uh, specifically targeting Jewish people who were banned from many professions, could have their property confiscated, and the professions they were banned from included, like, banking, government, and education. So, oh, and interracial relationships and marriages between Italians and other, uh, other, big, big air quotes and others. We're prohibited. So here's here's Rita's problem. <sighs> yeah. She was Jewish. I mean, it sounds really bad if I'm like, of course she was. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Here she was in Belgium. Her family was still in Turin and Belgium was on its way to being invaded. So she heads back to Turin and her family is like, well, what do we do? Like, are we going to America or are we living off the grid? And they chose living off the grid. Okay, that's ballsy as fuck. Okay. (laughs) I have never related to anything so hard in my life right now. (laughs) So, like, by off the grid, I mean, like, like in the country with, like, little cottage, like, villages where, like, nobody really went to. Like, out in the European countryside that were, like, so small that nobody really gave a shit. And then they were helped by a lot of people who weren't Jewish. So, like hidden and like yeah so they stayed and they did that and i mean rita she wasn't just gonna sit there and do nothing so she had work to do and it had nothing to do with a war but she wanted to do science and she created a research lab in her bedroom okay okay cool i mean i feel like honestly like i would have done that yeah like when covid hit like i already had a home studio so like i didn't have to like figure out how to do art making in my home but yeah. I feel like, you know, if you're you isolated like that, like I would, I would have been like, okay, well, what can I bring together? Like, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And like this is where I was like when you when you said something about her doing stuff on the side when her dad wasn't noticing like mm-hmm. this is probably like it all came into fruition at this moment where she was like, well, I have uh, experience in this. Yep. I've done this before. <laughs> I can do it again. Yeah. Just going to do it again. It's fine. I'm just going to keep doing science. Mm-hmm. It's fine. So there was this article, 1934, by a man named Victor Hamburger. By the way, Victor is spelled with a K, so I really like this name. Oh, just like a doggy. Okay, cool. <laughs> I just like his last name is Hamburger. I know. My dog really likes hamburgers. Really wants hamburgers. He never gets them because I never let him have human food unless it's like carrots. But that's off. That's off. Not the point at all. Anyway, he reported what would happen when he surgically removed limbs in chick embryos and then placed them into other chick embryos to see how they would grow. Um, I don't know if I like this guy anymore. <laughs> Especially with some of the shit the Nazis were up to. Like, ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He was, he was not a Nazi sympathizer, if that's okay. what you're thinking. No, no, that's good. It's just, like, some of the Nazi doctors, like, what they were doing in concentration camps, like, experimenting yeah. is yeah. beyond disgusting, but. And I think, I mean, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's. It, it was beyond disgusting. But I also think that we need to think about the time period in which we're talking where yeah. eugenics was a really big part, not just in Germany, but in many other places. Like, mm-hmm. it was the hot science. But it wasn't like, – this wasn't really eugenics. Like, this just wanted to see – like, this was a little bit different. This was seeing how the embryos developed when you had removed them, which is not great. You're still taking apart a chicken. It, it just it was to see how the body grew hmm. because we didn't know we didn't know the developmental stages we didn't know the factors of it like and this this does come into play later like things were still being discovered of our bodies and mm-hmm. how they are created and processed and this was what that experiment experiment was trying to find okay and this caught Rita's eye because she was like the limbs that were moved and put into the embryo they they grew, but they were, they had hypoplasia, which they were just, just were not fully developed, which is funny. They grew, but not well enough. And this caught Rita's eye. So she was kind of doing the same thing in her bedroom, from what I understand. Okay. But again, she's like, she moved, she like relocated a few times, right? So originally they were hanging out at a country cottage in Piemonte, Italy. I fucked that up real hard. Uh, until that got invaded, and then they slipped away, thankfully, to Florence, and then they lived underground until the end of the war. So, and and she she even do you remember the 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 professor, the world renowned histologist? Maybe by name, not by name, but do you remember she had a world renowned professor as her as a mentor? Oh, sorry, I thought you might have been referring to someone else you previously covered. Oh, and no, I was no, no, like, no, no, you no. gotta give me more than that. I don't remember. Um, okay, yeah. So her her professor that she studied under. He was also Jewish, so he slipped out and connected with her and was her lab assistant in the underground. Yeah, so they, like, they were, like, staying together and Mm -hmm. trying to, like, keep working, keep growing. But it was really hard because with all the relocation and it was still in a bedroom and she didn't have a lot of resources and she was hiding from Nazis. So published works in that time from her, they don't exist. Just the daily stress that, like... What if today we're found out? What if today they come for us? Like every single day. And at that point, for that's your existence for years. For years. Yeah. So like 
that's cool that she didn't publish anything. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not yeah, expecting yeah, anything more than she that. She had some shit going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, but for there was, like, one report of, like, bombs going off and they, like, okay. And they, like, grabbed their microscope and went downstairs. Like, Yeah. No, last season. Crazy. I, I covered um, Pan Yu Lang, who was the first Chinese artist to really paint a Western style. And prior to World War II, she moved to France. And then World War II hit. And she spent the war, like, out in the countryside. You know, yeah. similar to, like, your family, like, just trying to write it out and to stay in hiding. And artwork that she did during that time, like, zero. No. Like, you're literally trying to not die because of Nazis. Yeah. So I imagine that this is something, like, to help keep her mind off of, to help her get through it. Yes. Like, coping mentally and morally. Yeah. And to have somebody that she knows and loves with her as, like, her partner, her science partner. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, somebody that she cares for. Like, we're going to get through this together. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that was that was definitely a lot of moral support kicking mm-hmm. in. So, yeah, the research was taking a little bit of a respite. But she was offered – she offered her services during the war. She was in contact with members of a political party called Partito de Acción, which is translated to Action Party, the Action Party. Okay. It was a liberal socialist deal. So refugees needed medical attention, and she was a doctor. So mm-hmm. she jumped right in. And then when the war ended – she and her family were free to head back to Turin, and she was finally accepted back into the university as a professor. Mm-hmm. Like, she was no longer an other, and she thought that it was like, okay, this is it. The war is over. I can finally relax and do my research and live out my life, right? Mm. This is this is where she thought she would end. She would go up the ladder, retire, and it'll be fine. Until 1947 hit. Hamburger heard about her. Okay. Reached out to her. Okay. And offered her a position in St. Louis. Where is that? St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, you said okay. I thought you said St. Lily at first. Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. He wanted to rehash his chicken embryo experiments. Okay. All right. He he wanted her to join, and it was supposed to be a year long thing at the most, and then it just like extended. So the last experiment was him dropping another limb into an embryo and seeing how it chalked up to the rest of the bird once the skeleton was done cooking. Sure. I I mean, I'm still not entirely on board with this, but okay. All right. The pursuit of science. 1940s. What are you going to do? Um, this is not the worst fucking scientific thing. <laughs> no, no. You're right. You're right. Comparatively, this is just science. Like, this is what it is. Yep. I don't want to tell you. We still dissect cats and anatomy and physiology class yeah yeah i'm pretty just... sure i named mine i can't remember what i named her i mean i eat plenty of eggs every day so i sorry to vegetarians and vegans everywhere but that's just what science started on and like i don't know like i'm an organ donor yeah no, they may I not too. be able to use my liver but <laughs> everything else yeah like americans drinking rates this past like nine months and sugar consumption we're like, yeah, we're all fucking stressed out. We want a drink and we want a fucking cookie. <laughs> okay? Can you fucking blame us? So what is what is she making of all this time spending with Mr. Hamburger Man putting surrogate chicken limbs into other embryo sacks? It's it's science. <laughs> it's what they did. There was no eye blinking. <laughs> okay. It does not sound great, but honestly, at the end of the day... A lot of our petri dishes, they're made from like goat's blood, and like oh really? Wait, you told us a story about that with yeah, 
There's a whole goddamn catalog of science stuff where, like, animals are used for this. But, yeah, no, that's that's a very common thing even today. Like, Yeah. I mean, a lot yeah. of our medication and to make sure things are even um, relatively safe for potential human testing. Yeah. It's not fun. It's not yeah. something I would like. That's why I didn't want to do, like... Like, you can make money as a veterinarian, but most of the time it involves you either being an equine veterinarian, which, no thank you, I don't deal with horse people, or you do, like, CDC work with animals that are just used for, like, slaughters and, like, science, and I literally couldn't handle that. I could not do it. Uh, yeah. So, his new experiment was to have a, like, a Petri dish that was made from, like, embryonic membrane of a of a chick okay. and then drop in uh, mouse tumors you know what honestly that's more interesting to me i'm i'm like yeah let's do that like let's get cancerous <laughs> mouse things in there but like that's so funny i'm like eh, i don't know you're adding extra chicken to my chicken I don't, that's a little weird <laughs> but i'm like interspecies growth let's do it it's probably cancerous <laughs> all of these experiments though they were uh they were seeking out answers about what causes growth and development mm-hmm. uh, in mammalian species. What tells our body, our tissues, our cells to start growing and to stop growing. So what's the deal, right? Okay. They found that when they dropped the mouse tumors into the embryo, that there was an insane amount of growth, uh, specifically the amount of ne- like neurons surrounding the mouse tumor in the embryo. It was just uh, unbelievable. You know what a neuron is, right? Yeah, 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 no, I, okay, so you're dropping in most likely like a cancerous mouse tumor. Or benign. Lump. Tumors are just mast cells. Okay, just, all right, so not necessarily, not necessarily cancers then, just a, a lump. Just and there. And it's going into this like, you know, kind of supercharged embryonic fluid of a chicken. And mm-hmm. you've gotten the little thinking neurons that are connecting kind of. Okay. So between when a mammal is developing, the first thing that develops is the brain and yeah, the, the heart. The neural and tube. the spine. Correct. The central nervous system. Yeah. That central nervous system helps feed and create other parts of the body. Mm-hmm. So those neurons, they are actually very they're they're key to the growth and development of the rest of the creature that's being created. So the the kind of growth that they found in the petri dish that they created was it would surround it like it's trying to create more more for this chick right yeah the the embryonic fluid recognized a substance and it it was triggered by the substance so here's 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 the thing so basically cells divide and grow based off of extracellular influences so outside of the cell like temperature could be um a reason that a cell needs to grow or do a thing. Mitosis. You need to, you need mitosis. You just, you need it to like regrow skin cells, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then one of those other ones is called the growth factor. It's a little protein that tells the cell, okay, it's time to grow now. And then it'll eventually tell the cell, okay, it's time to stop now. Okay. It's a regulator. And when a chick is developing, there are a lot of neurons running around trying to create a nervous system, like I told you, amongst other things. Mm-hmm. So a tumor is just an overgrowth of the cells. Nothing has told this thing to stop growing. So all of the cells keep replicating over and over and over again. And tumors tend to lack that little protein that tells the cells that enough is enough. Or 
they have dysfunctioning ones that continue to tell them to grow. Okay. Right. Either way, there's a mess regulation occurring. Correct. Yeah. So when they dropped a tumor with no regulation into an embryo, it's no surprise to us now that there was much more growth recorded than the control embryos. But back then, it was a surprise because they they were the two two individuals that identified the protein and its function in development and growth. They were the ones... She was the one that was like, the nerve growth factor, that's a thing. Okay. This is what it does. Let me tell you about it. So that's what she is known for. And this experiment is what she did to figure that out. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's so wild to think back to these type of studies and you're like, you know, that was like 80 years ago, which Mm -hmm. does sound like a while ago. But you're like, that was less than 100 years ago. Like. Mm-hmm. And I, you just, yeah, like, oh, that just seems so straightforward now. And I just want, like, wonder in the future, like, what crap are we going to look back on now and be like, God, they were such idiots. Can't believe they didn't figure out, like, X, Y, and Z, like. Stem cell research. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually just read an article today on how they're using the, uh, like, how they created the COVID vaccine and specifically how they used the MR- mRNA how they use that. Mm-hmm. They were trying to apply that to symptoms of multiple, multiple sclerosis. Okay. So when you fund science, even for shitty reasons, like 300,000 people dying, things start to go forward. They start to move forward. And if we funded more, we wouldn't have these, like, stalls, these stalls and stops. You know what I mean? The last time we put any effort into fucking science was the 1950s, and that was to get us to a goddamn moon before Russia got there. Like... If we just continued, I, I'm sorry, I'm a little angry about it. <laughs> like, no, okay. but you're right. Really, like, prioritizing that type of funding and then also encouraging that, like, international collaboration within work. For sure. It, I mean, it's big. I mean, like, specific to America. I mean, if you just look at, like, the ridiculous amount we spend on defense spending. Mm-hmm. And you're like, excuse me, like, why can't we fix the water, like, issues in Flint? Like, why can't? We offer, like, maybe free community college to people. Like, you look at that amount of money and you're like, there's no reason we can't do this other stuff. No. None whatsoever. Like, that cannot be an excuse. But we're not that kind of country. We're not that kind of people. We got to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and then invade the capital. Anyway, this experiment and the experiments that stemmed from it would last way longer than a year. So she eventually became an associate professor at Washington University would later be promoted to, like, a full-on professor. Mm. And then while doing that, she also established a research unit in Rome called the Research Center of Neurobiology of the CNR. And CNR stands for Central Neural System, or Nervous System, excuse me, Central Nervous System. So brain and spine, right? Yes. Um, So she just, like, bopped back and forth from Italy to, like, St. Louis until her retirement in 1977, but then went back to work holding a position as director of the Institute of Cell Biology of the Italian Nation Council of Research. In 1986, she received the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology for her work on nerve growth factors. What? Uh-huh. That's awesome. Huge experiment. It sounds crazy, but it it opened up a lot of doors. Yeah, I know. It laid the foundation for a lot of study to be built off of it. Right. And then she, I mean, she kept working... 2002, she also got the uh, European Brain Research Institute up and running, served as its president, Mm -hmm. and then 
Like most of the women we've covered, stopping her work was not an option, even if she retired. So in this case, Rita worked until 2012 uh, when she passed away in Rome. And she was 103 years old. Okay, I still have Grandma Moses on you, and she passed when she was either 110 or 111, but, like, that is impressive. Right. Like, all I have to do, all we have to keep doing is working. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's the key. That's the success, to keep your mind going know, and your body. There's a comedian who Me. does a skit about that, about just, oh, it's Eddie Izzard. Eddie Izzard does a skit about little old ladies <laughs> just not dying. Death shows not up. Dying. And nope. she's like, I'm busy. I'm busy. Just come back later. <laughs> And I feel and like that's we, where we are. We have. We've covered so many people that, like you said, they, they you don't retire from your work. It's your life's work. You're just going to keep going right. until you're physically unable to. And a lot of the times that means you just die. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay by me. Like, all I want to do is just make myself better than when I showed up. Yeah. And have some positive influence on what's around me as well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's... My short story about a wonderful Italian neurobiologist. That's pretty cool. Okay, so you said her name was Rita Levi Motalcini. Okay, I'm really bad with names. I said that slowly because it's I'm not I'm not good at the Italian. All right, well you know what? That's not a terrible start to 2021, and for no. season three of the podcast. Yeah. yeah, season three. I know. I know. We're still doing this. <laughs> well, I, when we started, it, t- it took us a while to actually get properly started and recording. And I remember doing some reading and seeing how a lot of people just dropped doing a podcast after seven episodes. And here we are. 41 episodes later. Yeah, we're still going. And people <laughs> still keep showing up. Oh, man. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Oh, I'm you so excited. You guys are really awesome. And as always, if you want to reach out, if you've got anyone in particular that you think would be a good fit to cover, you can hit us up. And Milan, if people want to find out more about the people we've covered, where they can see more or reach out to us, where can they go? So we have a website, myfavoritefeminists.com. We have an Instagram and Facebook also under that name. It's My Favorite Feminists. Twitter is at Milana Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. And then if you want to email us, let us know. It's info at myfavoritefeminist.com. You can find us on really where any major podcasts are played. So Spotify, Apple, all that good stuff. It takes two seconds to like, subscribe, share. And if you're feeling so inclined in the comments section below, let us know. What would be on your family crest? I already told you. It would be a goat. It, it would be, be a goat. A mountain goat. I'm No, a Moroccan tree goat. Yeah. That's the type of spirit I personify the idea. Of, how did you get up there? And how are you going to get down? <laughs> and I'd be like, you know what? Don't ask questions. I had to get something from the very top shelf of the cupboard. Okay? Had to happen. I don't know what I would be. A really dramatic animal. Just, just for my entire family in general. Not just me. A cat. Cats are not dramatic. They are so dramatic. Dogs are dramatic. I can name at least 16 different dog breeds that are more dramatic than any cat. Do you want to play this game? I can play this game. Husky? German Shepherd? Uh, no, it might be a German Shepherd because they are dramatic AF. Uh, not my kind of dog, though. I love pit bulls so much more. But I come from a family who loves German Shepherds, so it's uh, pretty fitting. Okay. Yeah. 
I like how when we ask like family crest, you're like, oh, let me consider my family in a whole. And I'm like, let me consider me. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, you're already part of my family. And at some point, there'll be a subsection of a crest with a German shepherd and a goat on it. So we'll just deal with that when the time comes. When we, but when we get there. Until then, <laughs> we'll see you guys next time. And thank you for tuning in and joining us for episode one of season three. Yeah. Woo! We keep coming back. <laughs> we, we, we hope you do, too. Please. Please. <laughs> we love you. All right, until next time, guys. Bye. That sucks. We need to go to the West. When all this is done, Barbie, dogs, West Coast. Let's do it. Yeah, I don't know about both our dogs in an RV together. That might be a little tight. Oh, that's right. Your dog might try to kill my dog. Your dog might try to kill my dog. Oh, no.